Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Kimberly Atkins, Boston Globe opinion columnist and recovering attorney. And the sisters and I have so much to talk about this week. With me, as usual, are... I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the former Watergate prosecutor and author of The Watergate Girl. I'm Barb McQuaid. I'm a professor at the University of Michigan Law School and a former federal prosecutor. And I'm Joyce Vance, also a law professor, but at the University of Alabama Law School and the former United States Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama during the Obama administration. And we are hashtag sisters in law. So sisters, uh, fill us in about what you've been doing since we talked last, last week. Barb, how about you? Well, I've been watching an awful lot of impeachment on television in between teaching. I've watched as much of it as I can. And, you know, one thing I find that's different from being a lawyer in the courtroom and watching trials, you know, when you're listening to your opposing counsel argue, maybe you're jotting down notes, uh, points that you want to respond to. Uh, Instead, I've been live tweeting. So um, sometimes things are ending (laughs) at exclamation points because I can't yell it out at my TV. But um, watching a lot of that and uh, um, shaking my head. A fair amount. What about you, Joyce? So I teach a seminar in the spring on democratic institutions. And as uh, luck and good fortune would have it, on the syllabus next week is a topic that we all know a lot about right now, impeachment. So as I've been watching the trial and and, um, playing along on, on TV and on Twitter like Barb, I've also been doing some reading on the history, reading really great books, including one by Professor Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, um, some other more recent books that have come out, and just pondering whether impeachment in general is uh, sufficient to ensure the health of the institution of the presidency. It seems like a much more live issue uh, than it has in previous years. Jill, how about you? I've been doing pretty much the same as everybody else, glued to my television, watching the impeachment trial, and having the benefit of a computer next to me, I get to look up whatever they say to see if it's true or false. And guess what I found? A lot of falsehoods were spoken today when the defense went forward. So that's pretty much what I've been doing. But I also, like Barb and Joyce this week, I taught two classes at AU, American University, Um, a professor who has a class that includes my book as a um, tool. So that was fun for me. And I, too, have been spending a lot of time focused on impeachment, watching it, writing about it in the Boston Globe, talking about it on MSNBC. And now I look forward to talk about it some more, uh, talking about it some more with all of you. So let's let's get right into it. This week we'll be uh, taking on the impeachment and its First Amendment implications or lack thereof, uh, the possible consequences for the former president and breaking down the newly opened investigation into his conduct in Georgia. And after that, we'll be answering some of the questions that you have sent in for us. So I will start us off uh, talking about the defense today. And one of the issues that Donald Trump's lawyers brought up to try to defend uh, his conduct is to say that it was protected by the First Amendment. The gist of the argument was that he was engaged in a political exercise when he gave that rally, that Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, said it was just like all the other rallies he's been holding for five years. And in um, that way, he was engaged uh, in speech that the Supreme Court has found to be protected. Now, as the lawyer in me sort of was jumping up and down and and, uh, screaming back at the screen, uh, like Barb was saying, um, because he brought up the standard in the Supreme Court case, Brandenburg v. Ohio. And I'm going to read it to you. Uh, It's a two-pronged test to decide whether speech has First Amendment protection. One, its speech can be prohibited if it's directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action. And two, if it is likely to incite or produce such such action. It seems to me that the impeachment attorneys did a very good job in making both of those cases. But it it, it seemed really strange to me, and I want your take, about how among the things that Trump's lawyers did today was sort of mock the impeachment attorneys uh, for talking about whether or not uh, 
what Trump said and his his conduct and his actions would foreseeably cause people to go to the Capitol when that is an essential element to show uh, that it does not enjoy that First Amendment protection. They seem to be pretending like that wasn't the standard while pointing out that it was the standard and saying that they didn't meet the standard. I was trying to follow that legal train of thought and I got lost a couple times. What do you guys think? So can I just say that it was it, exactly, it, it was mind numbing. And there were points where I wanted to stand up and just start banging my head into the wall to make it go away. Um, but I think our job as, as lawyers is to be thoughtful about this and to really work through the First Amendment issue. And so the first thing that we should discuss is whether we even have to consider the Brandenburg standard. We've talked about it amongst ourselves before. That's a case where a a, uh, member, a high-ranking member of the Ku Klux Klan is prosecuted. He's facing criminal charges uh, over some speech that was... uh, uh, could have reasonably provoked violence, except for the fact that he wasn't in front of a live live crowd. And the Supreme Court says, no, this speech is, is not going to be speech that the government can criminalize because it's not designed to incite immediate violence. And that's how we end up with this standard. And the question is, would that even apply at impeachment? And the answer is no, not at all. Because impeachment isn't just limited to criminal charges. Impeachment, and yesterday, Representative Raskin was very clear about explaining, impeachment is about violating your oath of office. There's no First Amendment right that's implicated in that situation. So we don't really even have to get to the Brandenburg argument, but we can discuss it for the sake of argument since Trump's lawyers raise it. I think that's a great point, and it's an important one, um, that the First Amendment is not necessarily a shield. There are things that a president can do that in other circumstances might warrant constitutional protection. But as president, and when you're taking your oath, um, that could still be grounds for losing that job and losing the ability to continue uh, to do that job, particularly when it puts the democracy in peril. Barb, Barb, I would love your thoughts on this. Yes, and you know, I've read some very good analogies to this because, as both of you point out, um, it, it isn't that uh, President Trump is being criminally prosecuted or even civilly sued for things that he said. The First Amendment protects us against unlawful speech. Um, instead, the decision is, are you worthy of the office of the president of the United States? And one could imagine some of these analogies that I've read about. A president who decides, for now on, I'm going to wear a swastika armband. And from now on, I'm going to burn the flag on the lawn of the White House every day. Uh, those things are all permitted under the First Amendment. But I think many of us would say, this is not a person who is fit to serve as president of the United States. So it's a very different question. I also think that this First Amendment argument is a way for Trump's lawyers to uh, argue very narrowly the scope of his misconduct. They want to focus solely on what he said that day on January 6th and say, sure, this is just another fiery speech. Everybody says fight, fight, fight when they're talking to their political followers. And uh, that's all protected by the First Amendment. But what you have to look at is the entire scope of conduct that's occurred for many months, beginning in the summer, when he said, if I lose the election, it will be because the election was rigged and trying to intimidate election officials in Georgia and Michigan and elsewhere and inviting people to come to Washington as far back as December, come January 6th, we'll be wild. So I think all of that is part of the case, not just solely looking at what he said on January 6th in isolation. Yeah, how about you, Jill? I agree, of course, with everything that's been said, but I would Uh, divert to the actual First Amendment normal understanding as applied to any citizen. And I would say that even an ordinary citizen could not have given the speech in the context that it was given, because context really matters. When the defense today used the word fight and showed video of Democrats using the word fight in, I think, at least 200 times, none of those was a uh, intention of causing violence. None of them was in the context that it led to violence. All of them were, I'll fight for you. I will fight for civil rights. They were legitimate uses of a nonviolent fight. 
as opposed to how Donald Trump has encouraged violence and urged fighting in a violent way, and how on this occasion, when he said, go to the Capitol, the only action they could take to stop the vote, which is what he told them to do, was to use violence. There was no other legitimate interpretation of his words. So under even the lowest standard, the First Amendment would not protect him, even if he was just an ordinary citizen. And that's so important, Jill. I mean, I think that's one reason I was particularly gobsmacked when uh, Trump's attorney, uh, Bruce Castor, brought up to support this First Amendment argument, uh, the case Bond v. Floyd, which, uh, of course, involves civil rights icon Julian Bond. And um, what that case is about is essentially the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee back in the 60s came out against the Vietnam War and came out against the draft. Um, And the Georgia State Legislature uh, wanted to try to get Julian Bond from prevent him from being seated and asked him if he would denounce that position um, by by the organization. And he said he wouldn't. And the Supreme Court said that was protected. That was protected speech to say I am against the war, to say I am a pacifist. So the fact that Trump's attorneys were using that case of all cases to say that he had the right to incite violence, um, just really, not only was that not legally on point, it was particularly, um, just particularly offensive to me. It really was. And the way that they raised both the case that involved SNCC and other cases that they talked about, as though they said something that was exculpatory for the president, and they really weren't. The case law says political officials, elected officials, have a right to engage in free speech. They can go out and and speak their mind. But what those cases don't do, they don't extend the First Amendment any further than it would reach for, for an average citizen, for one of us. And so to Jill's point, which I think is exactly the right one here, none of us could go out on the ellipse and direct an angry and violent mob to launch at the Capitol. Trump can't do it either. The First Amendment is not a safe harbor for him here. Yeah, and uh, as some members of the Supreme Court has said, the Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact either. These rights are not absolute. We have to temper them with some common sense. And I think President Trump's lack of willingness to take responsibility for his actions is very telling. There's been no apology or uh, remorse for the loss of life at the Capitol that day. And I think all of that is very telling. Can I just say one other pet peeve that I heard today um, that is um, not so much a legal argument But um, something that I heard again and again, referring to the party as the Democrat Party, deliberately mispronouncing Kamala Harris's name, Kamala Harris. I know they know better. You hear this frequently from some Republicans uh, in the House, not so much in the Senate. um, And I find it to be um, very disrespectful and unprofessional. And it immediately... Uh, label somebody as part of a team. I am on Team Republican. I'm opposed to Team team Democrat. And I find that so um, unhelpful and unhealthy in a democracy. When I hear that, um, and and obviously I'm not the target audience, and maybe there are some who find that attractive in some sort of way, but it uh, it immediately undermines the speaker's credibility. Can anyone explain to me what that is all about? I think it's the same as the people who use dog whistles, right? It's exactly what you're saying, Barb. It's identifying yourself as part of a tribe where that second grade playground conduct is acceptable. And it's offensive to us. But I think what it's important as the country moves forward for us to wrap our minds around is that there are people out there who welcome that sort of signaling, who count themselves uh, among groups that think uh, that that's clever conduct. And if we're really going to have a conversation in this country about how we get back together again, we're going to have to learn to understand folks who are in that camp. Right now, understanding really eludes me. I agree with you, Barbara. I think it is definitely intended as a call out to Trump supporters. It's a silent whistle to them. And it is offensive. And in order for us to have the dialogue that we need to heal, We have to respect each other. 
I always called Donald Trump President Trump. Not everyone did because they didn't want to show him that respect. But I think whoever holds that office has that title. And I think that we have to use the right name for our current vice president. We have to avoid that kind of demeaning behavior. Yes, I, I agree with you, Jill. I think by modeling respectful behavior, um, perhaps we'll see more of it. So we'll, we'll take a pledge to do that. Why don't we move on now to um, thinking beyond this trial and thinking about long-term, what might be the consequences for President Trump as a result? I mean, if he is convicted, uh, does that mean the end of his political career? Or does that simply make him a martyr in the eyes of some who follow him? And if he is acquitted, as appears to be likely uh, in terms of vote counting, um, what does that do to his political future? Does that simply embolden him and his followers uh, that he is untouchable? Kim, what do you think about that? I think it definitely, I think probably the most consequential result of this trial would be if there is a conviction and uh, the Senate subsequently makes him ineligible to run for office again. That's the one way to protect democracy in terms of making sure that he doesn't engage in these very same actions right again. He could tomorrow, if, if he's acquitted, he could the next day declare he's running for president in 2024, set up a campaign finance account and be able to fundraise and hold more rallies and do exactly what he did. That's the biggest danger here. So I think that is the most consequential thing. And if he's acquitted, there's absolutely nothing that will stop him from doing that. Um, and, and and that's what's at stake here. I think it, for, look, the, the he has succeeded in using division as a political tool for so long, both to um, denigrate people who he sees as political enemies and also galvanize his own supporters in a way that's just, um, it's beyond fanatic, that I think he'll absolutely be seen as a martyr by some folks, no matter what happens. But I think if he loses his political power, if he's unable to run for office again, if you look at, frankly, autocratic governments, a lot of times when those folks lose power, um, the people who were very, very just demonstrating nothing but fealty to them quickly stop because there's no reason to. Of course, he'll have some supporters. I think his support will begin to diminish greatly um, if he can't run for office again. Um, and so I think that is the biggest, that's the biggest thing that's at stake here. But something that's really concerning is that just like Trump could not issue pardons for crimes that were charged in the state system, the Senate can't exclude him from running for statewide office. Right. So we could, for instance, see him announce his candidacy to be governor of Florida. Barb, I see the look on your face right now. <laughs> oh, I mean, God, it no. comes with all of the same problems, right? It's exactly what Congressman Lou announced yesterday as a potential problem. He yeah. runs, he loses, he puts the country through this again. That is a real problem that it's not just up to Democrats to confront. This is up to Americans to confront. It is, but I have been hearing some commentary that gives me some hope that Republicans <clears throat> feel that even if he is acquitted, the House managers put on such a compelling case that his political future is over, that even without being convicted, he will never be elected again. Uh, but I would suspect that his movement isn't going to die so fast and that his supporters are going to transfer their loyalty to Hawley, Cruz, hard to say exactly who, uh, Lindsey Graham. But I also haven't quite given up all hope of getting 17 senators because the questions that need to be answered, even the question that Senator Cassidy said he needed answered before he could say how he would vote on the merits, which was, why did Donald Trump do nothing when he knew that the vice president was in danger, that the Capitol had been invaded? And that question was not addressed by the defense, uh, at least as of now. I assume it'll be a question they'll be asked during the question period, but we're recording during that, so we don't know what they're saying. As of now, that's an open question. And all of uh, Senator Raskin, uh, um, House Manager Raskin's questions have not been answered. So there are some real questions that could, you know, I cried twice listening to the evidence. And 
I was very deeply moved. And I think there may be some Republicans beyond the six that we have counted and um, that maybe he will be barred from office. You know, one thing that came to mind when when I was listening and and watching that case too, Jill, um, is seeing that video of Officer Eugene Goodman stopping Mitt Romney, telling him to turn around and go back because the insurrectionists were coming. Um, How do you, if you are a member of that body that votes not to convict Donald Trump, how do you face Mitt Romney in that chamber? How do you think about his family and and how close he came. How do you face Chuck Schumer, who too had to run um, on that video to get away from from the mob that was coming that would have certainly recognized either one of them and who knows what would have happened? They have to work with these folks, you know? And that's the part that really strikes me. And they have to look at themselves in the mirror in the morning. How do they look at themselves? They heard the evidence we heard. They heard the defense that we heard, and it doesn't answer the evidence that we saw. It just doesn't. And so, to me, it's, it's a very compelling case with no defense. It's an interesting question of the emotional impact versus the legal arguments that are being made. I had a moment when I was watching the videos that, that really hit close to home. We were watching Speaker Pelosi's staff run into the inner office where they barricaded the door. And then we saw the mob banging on the door. And so my daughter worked on the Hill two summers ago. And I had this momentary flash of my 20-year-old in that situation, having to figure out what to do to protect her life. And, And it was painful, even at that great remove. And you wonder about all of the people who have loved ones in the Capitol, not just the members and their staff, but the janitors, the cafeteria workers, the the engineers, right? And you have to take a moment and wonder, how did these senators look any American in the eye after that? And then you think about the Capitol police officers who take an oath too, and they stood out on the front steps, they retreated into the building, They upheld their oath that day. How did these Republican senators do any less and retain credibility? I just can't get past that. You know, I know that they wanted to move the trial along fairly quickly because the Democrats have uh, President Biden's agenda of COVID relief and confirming nominees and some other things. But I thought they really missed an opportunity to call some live witnesses to really bring home the real harm that did occur. I think that people feel like, well, we really dodged one. Uh, You know, Mike Pence is okay. Thank goodness all these members of Congress are okay. But you know, five lives were lost that day. Two more police officers committed suicide. And seeing that body cam footage, you can understand the trauma that they went through and the idea of returning to the job, I'm sure, was incredibly traumatic. But I would love to have heard from some of those people, Joyce, that you mentioned on Nancy Pelosi's staff who cowered under a table as protesters pounded on doors for hours. And also, you know who I think I'd love to have heard from? Some of the janitors who faced the mob. They were in the building, so their lives were in danger. And then after it was all over, they had to clean up the mess. They had to wipe feces off of walls. They had to, you know, sweep up broken glass. Um, I'd like to hear from from some of those people about what they experienced that day. Um, I, I think that it could have been very a very powerful moment to help us really understand the harm that was done here. I agree with you. And I also would have liked to have heard Officer Hodges, who was the officer who was squeezed in the door, was bleeding from his mouth. You could see it. And they kept on. It's, it was so horrible. And the silent security camera taping was really dramatic. So that would have been good. And I would have liked to have heard Vice President Pence. How Same. did he feel knowing that mm-hmm. he was attacked by the president after the president knew that his life was in danger mm-hmm. and that he had been whisked away. And and I don't want to use the word for Nancy Pelosi's staff as cowering. They were taking cover from a, a violent mob. Their yeah, I'll lives accept were that friendly risk. amendment. And You're cower right. sounds like coward. <laughs> and so let's let's not use that word. It it's um it just we'll troubles do. me. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
I think the, I think the point about Mike Pence is so important, though. I mean, I would have, um, if I were impeachment manager, tried to make the case to at least invite him in to yes. talk about that, because that's a, that gets to a crux of the impeachment case itself. While um, some of the other things we're talking about just talks about the enormity of it, the immense um just how dangerous it was. The fact that Mike Pence was in there and Donald Trump was still tweeting, knowing from both the Secret Service, um, who would have notified the White House if Mike Pence was in uh, trouble, and also the fact that he's the president and he has intelligence of what was happening inside. Also, the reporting that, um, which was substantiated by Senator Tuberville this week, that the president called him and was able to get through to him. And he told the president, Mike Pence was just evacuated. And he still tweeted after that. And he still didn't call the people off. The fact that Republicans themselves were urging the president to call them off is evidence to me that he's the one who sent them there. Um, And so uh, to hear Mike Pence say what he thought um, when when those moments were transpiring, what he was going through, the fact that he didn't talk to the president and didn't talk to the president for days afterwards, I think that would have been really compelling evidence that I think was missing here. So I'll just say, I'll play devil's advocate for a minute and say that I was taught as a young prosecutor to never ask a question if I didn't know what the answer was going to be. And one one really has to wonder what Mike Pence would say as a witness, whether or not he might exculpate the president. You don't have any real ability to, to truth test his responses beforehand. And then there's a second problem lurking here, and I'll just raise it theoretically because there's no way of knowing who it might apply to. But I bet like all of you, I would like to hear from some of these folks who were around Trump as this was all happening. We've got this report from from Ben Sass um, that Trump was delighted by how events unfolded. So it seems normal to want to hear from people around him. But I recall uh, the testimony on the Hill of Ollie North during the Iran-Contra affair. And he was given partial immunity in the course of testifying. And ultimately, that ended his criminal prosecution down the road. So who knows? This is just rank speculation. But perhaps there are concerns beyond the immediate trial that are at work here. So, Joyce, I'd like to answer a couple of things you said. One, um, about violating the rule. That is the basic rule. Sometimes you have to violate it. I know I did during the Watergate tapes hearing when I was presented with a witness that the White House said was the only one who could explain an 18-and-a-half-minute gap and that there was no innocent explanation. I wasn't allowed to interview her before she was in public on the stand But all I could do was say, what did you do? And I had to wait for her answer and then cross-examine her. In this case, I am assuming that when uh, Kim said that, she was assuming that the house managers would have spoken to him before and would have actually known. Because in that case, I think I wouldn't take the risk unless I knew what he was going to say. Um, So I don't think it would have been a big risk and would have been very interesting. But I will also add that I felt strongly before the trial started that live witnesses should be called with all the risk that that implies. But after I saw the emotion that was able to be created through the videos and through the testimony, really, of House managers who explained some of what they went through, I didn't feel we needed that. I felt the emotion was communicated and the danger was very real so that they accomplished through video and their own presentation, what live witnesses I would have thought were necessary for. Let me just interject one thing about what Jill just said. If you haven't read her book, The Watergate Girl, incredible <laughs> yes. uh, exchange of it, it, when she um, uh, cross-examined Rosemary Woods, uh, uh, Richard Nixon's secretary <laughs> during Watergate uh, and exposed the 18-minute gap. Um, really terrific book, Jill, not only about Watergate, but about the incredible sexism that you faced in those days. It's a great read. Thank you. We really need to spend a whole show talking about Jill's book one day. There's just so much <laughs> mm-hmm. buried inside of it. Um, but I, I will um, ask y'all, you know, yesterday morning, the four of us talked about the announcement by the Fulton County, that's Atlanta, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis, 
that she was looking into that now infamous phone call, the taped audio that we've all heard of President Trump alternately cajoling and threatening Georgia's Secretary of State, Raffensperger, to find him just the number of votes he needed to win the election, right? Find me 17,000 or 11,780 votes. Um, and we had talked about that investigation. It's certainly very interesting. It could be a criminal investigation involving a former president of the United States. And fortunately for us, Rachel Maddow got that district attorney, Fannie Willis, as her interview last night. So Willis is an experienced prosecutor. She was incredibly impressive in the interview. And she said she intends to conduct a grand jury investigation into that matter, into the former president. And it could possibly expand beyond Trump's call with Raffensperger. Um, so let me ask y'all, do you think that this is a, an important matter? Is this significant? And is Trump really at risk here? I would say he is. There's um, a number of crimes that she listed in her letter to Governor Kemp saying, keep all the documents. And someday we ought to have a conversation about transparency in government and retention of, of documents. Um, but there is, there are, there's a good chance that he may not be convicted of a felony in that case, but it's one of the many legal challenges before him. And Donald Trump is going to be very busy defending himself from criminal accusations, from civil accusations, from defamation lawsuits, from tax violations. And the fact that this call is recorded, we have it. And it may lead to, as she indicated, there may be more than this one phone call that violates a solicitation of election fraud, false statements. He certainly made false statements to the election officials. Uh, conspiracy, racketeering, some of those sound pretty terrible. So I think it's an important, and she seems very on top of this. Well, I would say, um, that, that, yes, I agree with Jill that this is certainly ought to be of some concern to President Trump, but facts matter, of course. And so the facts will determine whether there is a crime that occurred here. This idea of soliciting election fraud, um, you know, imagine the worst case scenario, and that is in that call, President Trump was asking the Secretary of State of Georgia to lie about the election results and say that Trump earned 11,000 plus more votes than he actually did. Uh, that would be a very serious crime. Um, it could be, on the other hand, that President Trump truly believed that fraud had been committed in the vote count and that he believed that if uh, the proper count were done, that there would be 11,000 additional votes for him. So the context is going to matter here. And so that's why an investigation is important. What other communications have occurred before and after that communication uh, between President Trump and the Secretary of State and with President Trump's own staff? And so I think that that investigation will matter. But but no doubt, uh, there is certainly at least uh, sufficient suspicion to merit an investigation. I mean, one fact that I'll be looking at in this investigation, and I agree with everything that Barb just said, but I recall when that uh, tape was released, that hour plus long tape was released, and I listened to the whole thing. And the, sh the most shocking part to me is aside from the the just barrage of election fraud conspiracy theories that were you know just patently false, even if he believed them, the part where he was pressing um, Raffensperger and was saying, you know, if you if you don't essentially saying if you don't find these eleven thousand plus votes, that's criminal. That's criminal activity there. It was clearly it felt like a threat. It felt like he was going to threaten. Um, some sort of crimi criminal, um, some criminal consequence if Raffensperger did not get on this part of the scheme. That's what it clearly felt like to me. And I think that is one area um, where I think this investigation can really bear fruit, particularly if there's other evidence of it. I think what happened today in the trial, in the defense presentation of the Georgia case, the word find, which was repeated I don't know how many times they use that word. It's going to be the equivalent of the Clinton impeachment. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. <laughs> We're going to get back to, depends on what the meaning of the word find is. And I agree with you, Kim. There sounded like a threat 
if you don't do this, it's going to be bad for you. It's going to be criminal for you. That's a threat. So that's why I take this as a serious investigation. You know, it's all context, right? And and when I hear the word find and this statute in the Deep South, it makes me think of, of these old-timey cases, the reasons many of these statutes were put in place. Um, what we used to call it in Alabama was dead people voting. I mean, there would, you know, supposedly be stories that you would hear about dead people voting in elections. So the Republicans had to pass these restrictive laws to keep that from happening. And so much of that context I hear when when Trump is saying, find me ballots. But Barb, you raised something interesting. You asked about, you know, what other calls took place between Trump or his staff and folks in Georgia. And we do know that there was at least one other call because it's so hard. I think now we all live pre and and post-coup, right? But pre-coup and pre-Trump's call with Raffensperger, there actually was a call between Lindsey Graham acting on behalf of the president and the secretary of state. He was the first one to float this notion of, of votes. And a letter was written to the secretary of state asking for an investigation. And somehow or another, that developed in, into news stories. So does that make us think that there might be more to this than, than just that one call from the president? Yeah. And of course, all of this evidence will matter in terms of determining President Trump's intent. Uh, You you may remember when Michael Cohen testified before Congress, he described the way President Trump talks. He talks like a mobster. He doesn't say, I want you to do X. Uh, He'll say, you know, uh, uh, nice uh, public office you have here, Mr. Secretary of State. It'd be a shame if something should happen to it. Right. He doesn't uh, directly and overtly threaten it, but He suggests that something could happen to his political career if he doesn't play ball. And so um, we need to determine what was meant by that. And so all of that context, Joyce, that you mentioned, the conversation with Lindsey Graham and others is going to matter in terms of assessing his intent. So interesting question. Is this investigation influenced by whether Trump is convicted in the impeachment trial? Let's play what District Attorney Fannie Willis had to say, and then we can discuss it. Did the impeachment and that process have any bearing at all on your decision to open this investigation or or how you look at your responsibilities here? Zero. None whatsoever. Just a completely independent process. Okay. We have— Yeah, it's it's a— I mean, if if we watch, so I just want to be clear, if, if we watch that trial and witnesses come forward that are relevant to my investigation, certainly we will do our due diligence and interview them. But um, whether there was an impeachment or not an impeachment would not change the fact that something occurred here within my jurisdiction that um, may be criminal. And if that is the case, it needed to be investigated. Yeah, I think that um, she's exactly right. These are different forms of legal redress, different forms of constitutional redress that are aimed at different things. And the impeachment power is aimed at, in part, as we discussed, protecting democracy, holding uh, the executive, the chief executive, uh, responsible for his actions in violation of his oath. Criminal law is meant to do something else. It's meant to prosecute when the law is broken uh, and one does not preclude another. That's why I got so uh, ticked by Senator Marco Rubio's tweet the other day. I wrote a whole column about it in the in the Boston Globe. You can read it. Um, suggesting that what happened at the Capitol was terrible. There's a criminal justice system to deal with it. No, Senator Rubio, your job is also to deal with it. So the two are completely separate. And people should understand that the impeachment clause itself says that the penalties for being uh, guilty of an impeachable offense of a high crime and misdemeanor are removal and barring from future office. And it specifically says you can go ahead and be charged with crimes for the same things. So there's no double jeopardy. It is completely possible to have a federal offense, a state offense, and an impeachment. Do you think President Trump could actually go to prison in Georgia? He could, One but step he at probably a time. won't. <laughs> Imagine I mean, the Secret Service having to be with him. I mean, how do you put a former president in prison? Yeah, with his Secret Service agents. I mean, this is a, it's a first offense. I mean, I'll make the Trump case. It's a first offense. It's a nonviolent crime. 
maybe he would get probation, but would that still be a significant sanction for a former president of the United States? I think it would be a sanction for him, even if he just gets house arrest and he's not able to go golfing. Well, I think, you know, criminal prosecution isn't only about punishment. It's also about deterrence, and it's about uh, saying what society is willing to tolerate. And so I think if the evidence is there to prove his guilt, even if he doesn't serve any prison time, there's still some accountability that can do some good. Yes. And I think that's the key. This is a president who never faced accountability for any of his misconduct. So baby steps, but it's it's good to see serious investigations by people who know how to do that without prejudging the outcome, because no one, Trump or anyone else, should be prejudged until a full investigation has been conducted and the evidence is in. It can be very tempting, right, to call lock her up, but we've had a little bit too much of that in this country, and we need to restore a thoughtful constitutional criminal process. I think that's a great ending to this conversation. And maybe it's time for us to turn to listener questions now. Each week, we answer questions that listeners send to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or via a tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to answer your questions during the show, we will try and answer as many as we can on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. So let's go to questions. One of our first questions is from Catherine in Sacramento, California. And she writes, I have a question about judicial appointments, particularly the ones rushed through by the Trump regime. Is there any way for the Biden administration to review some of the more egregious appointments and possibly reverse them? I assume she's referring to some of those that have been rated as totally unqualified by legitimate uh, bar associations. Anybody want to take a answer to that? I- I don't think that there is a way to look at those in hindsight unless those judges were to commit impeachable offenses. They have life tenure. They are on the bench. If anything, this is a lesson for the Biden administration to get going with highly qualified, diverse, and maybe even young appointees for the seats that are open. Yeah, I think it's also a political lesson for Democrats, again, um, who have not, they just haven't in recent years prioritized the importance of the judiciary and that appointment power when they campaign in the way that Republicans have. Um, That was Mitch McConnell's number one job was to turn the judiciary very, very conservative with the help of um, conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. And he's done a great job of that. The Democrats have not done that in the same way. uh, And that's why you see this uh, imbalance that is likely going to be in place for some years to come. Elections have consequences, and this is one of them. So I agree with that. So let's move to the next question, which comes from at my research M. In order to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, would you support ending ending the filibuster? Boy, that's a real trade-off, isn't it? Is it really though, Joyce? I mean, the filibuster, look. There is an argument that could be made that it was designed to sort of build consensus in lawmaking and in uh, confirming uh, in, in con- confirming cabinet members and other appointees. But what it's actually been used as in history, in in fact, is as a tool often by uh, senators from the South in order to block civil rights legislation in a way that protects them even when they are in the minority. It has been, it has been a disaster for civil rights, in my opinion, in my opinion. Um, and I would not be sad to see it go. I think it's rarely been used uh, for the higher goal that people often cite when they want to protect it. And in addition to that, you're, you're absolutely right about all of that. And in reality, if we were to go a step further and the Democrats were to try to honor it out of principle, there's no guarantee that the Republicans wouldn't do away with it when it became convenient for them. So I tend to agree with you. Yeah, it's not in the Constitution. It is a uh, tradition that has developed over time, and it is a tool of inaction. It's an opportunity to obstruct and delay. Um, And so I think that anybody who cares about advancing uh, progressive causes or just, uh, you know, progress in this country, uh, the filibuster is something that stands in the way. Now, on the other hand, it can be a check on 
uh, behavior that is too aggressive or too radical, I suppose. Um, but to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, I don't know. Yeah. I might go for it. It's worth it. That, that's <laughs> so not is it naive to think. Is it naive to think? You know, it used to be that the Voting Rights Act was often uh, re-upped under Republican administrations. That the votes were bipartisan. Is it too much to think that the country could get back to that point where we could see a bipartisan confirmation of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? I would say yes, especially now that it seems that for Republicans in from Congress to uh, state houses that keeping people from voting, implementing restrictive voting, uh, voting rights laws, laws that make it harder, voter ID, uh, limiting registration is the is the way to go to try to win elections. They're basically trying to stop uh, people who won't vote for them from voting. So I think the days of unanimous and and lopsided support for the Voting Rights Act are gone. And, you know, I, I just don't see the sort of issue that would lead to a Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment where the filibuster is used for good and not used for something nefarious. Come on, you don't want to hear Ted Cruz read Green Eggs and Ham again? (laughs) (laughs) The problem is that he can do that and no one else has to be in the chamber so that it really loses its impact. Um, And I think if we look at filibuster as a protection for minorities so that they can be heard, you can accomplish that by allowing People, when they actually want to talk about the substance and address an issue, that they can have the floor for as long as they want to talk, but that you don't need a two-thirds vote to stop it. You only need a majority and that you have a normal vote. That would allow people to talk as long as they want and to make their points and to try to convince people, but wouldn't be the gridlock that we get from filibuster now. Um, I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm used to be a big supporter of filibuster and now think that it is really an impediment to accomplishing anything. Hey Jill, I, I have a question. Can I ask a question? Yes. Uh, this is Kim from Washington, um, longtime <laughs> listener, first time questioner. Um, <laughs> so this week, uh, the news came out that the Justice Department, uh, President Biden's Justice Department, is asking for the resignation of Trump era U.S. attorneys. Um, but he he is uh, he wants the U.S. attorney overseeing the federal tax probe into his son Hunter to remain in place. So in the past, we've heard a lot about purging at the DOJ and and politicizing the DOJ. Since y'all are former uh, federal prosecutors, I would love to hear you explain the difference between what is happening here and that kind of politicized purging. Barbara Joyce, why don't you take a shot at answering first? Sure. So um, when President Trump came into office, you may recall, I was one of the 46 lawyers who was still uh, remaining as an Obama appointee. And we were asked to resign on March 10th and leave on March 10th. Um, I found that to be disruptive to myself personally, but more importantly to my office, because we didn't have adequate time to uh, transition. We had been told that there would be sufficient time for orderly transition, and that didn't happen. Um, What I see happening this time is giving lawyers about three weeks, U.S. attorneys, three weeks notice that you're going to be asked to resign in about three weeks. And that allows them to transition uh, items on their computers, uh, cases, uh, projects, speeches, and other things to other members in their office and finish up some of their commitments and responsibilities. So I think that's worthwhile. As to keeping a few people on, there is some tradition uh, to doing that. Um, For example, um, during the um, Clinton administration, right at the very end uh, of his administration, he granted a pardon to Mark Rich, who'd been a donor to his campaign. And U.S. attorney in the Southern District of of New York, uh, Mary Jo White, was permitted to stay on to continue that investigation. Now, certainly there are assistants who are actually really doing the real work. You know, Joyce and I took a lot of credit for the work of our assistants, and those assistants will continue to do that work. But um, in terms of approvals and some of the big strategic decisions, those are typically approved by the U.S. attorney, him or herself. And so if there were to be a change in leadership, it would require at least, I would think, 30 days or so for a new U.S. attorney to get up to speed to make those decisions. And so I think both to protect the integrity of the case itself and the appearance of justice in a case like that, uh, it is uh, common and wise to keep people on board. I think the acting U.S. attorney in um, 
Washington, D.C., who's acting, not a Trump appointee, is sticking around as well as he is investigating these Capitol Hill rioter cases. Right. I think that last point you made, Barb, about uh, the appearance of the investigation being supported when you don't replace an attorney, a, a U.S. attorney with someone from the new administration, right when they're in the middle of what might be a difficult or high public value public corruption case really matters because DOJ can only complete its mission successfully if it retains the trust of the communities that it's serving. And so in a case like that, preserving the appearance of neutrality and propriety can really matter as much as as actually being objective, like we all know that the offices are when they conduct these cases. So this is a a good thing to see happening. Um, We all know that DOJ's reputation suffered under the Trump administration. And I think it's positive step to see Biden being sensitive to this and taking an early step to begin to restore communities' trust in the Justice Department and the U.S. Attorney's offices. If I could just maybe phrase what you said, both Barbara and Joyce, a little differently, which is it's not the appearance of impropriety that uh, the case might fall between the cracks in the transfer. It's that the decision on something that affects the new president is being made by the person who started it and who he didn't appoint. And so that it's probably a wise move to leave, in that case, the U.S. attorney in place who started the investigation of Hunter Biden in the hopes that he is a man of integrity who will make a fair assessment of the evidence and act on that. All right. Well, thanks for answering my question. And that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. You will find the links in the show notes. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to hear what you think. See you next week for another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Hashtag Sisters in Law.